Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I'm joined by my sister Kay, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on the Amazing Spider-Man 2 film from 2014. Now, this is the first time I've seen this. Me too. And it's the second of what they were expecting, I think, to do a trilogy of for the uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. And there were a couple of things that definitely played off the, the first one, and I think they were ending on a note setting up for not only the next film, but I think at this point was when Sony was trying to, having seen the MCU being built up, they were going to do their own kind of Spider-Man universe. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. There was talk of a Sinister Six film, one either with the Black Cat and or Silver Sable. They did some Venom films, and I think there were plans for a few other things. I don't remember what all they were, though. Was Dr. Connors going to come back? I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised. And that actually would have been because we, we see seeds planted for other members of the Sinister Sticks, and he would have, could have been one of them. Well, it's just when you look at movie two, and part of it is we watched it so close to movie one, dovetail isn't quite the right word. Maybe mirror is a better phrase for it, but the scripts kind of mirror each other in terms of like how they start. Oh, yeah. The starting was almost... Uh... I don't want to say the flip side, but an extended sequence or alternate views of how the first one started. Well, this time we got from Dad's perspective yeah. instead of Peter's. Yeah. And then flipping all the way to the ending, the final scene reminded me very much of Dr. Connors at the end of the first one. When he gets the visit in the, the prison and such, yeah. Yeah, there were definitely some some parallels and similarities there. And some of that worked for me, some of it not entirely. I mean, there were a lot of callbacks to the first film in terms of when Harry needs uh, Peter's or Spider-Man's blood because he thinks that'll cure him. It's like, no, no, that could turn you into a lizard-like creature, you know, or maybe not a lizard exactly, but... It could do more harm than good. It could do more harm than good. It can can mutate you and so forth. I did like how we at least figured out what was happening with Norman, which we didn't see at all in the first movie, but there were signs of he's ill, he's not doing well, so... This, at least, you know, very much was a continuation of that. Yeah. And I think when you're doing these kinds of films, having things that you can build from movie to movie to movie is good. But if you've got too much that's in that big arc and the movies don't stand well enough on their own, because, again, it's going to be like it was a two-year gap thereabouts between these two films. You've got to figure it's been a while since the people have seen the first one or the previous one. Are they going to remember everything? Do you set the reset the scene well? Well, and that's why we had Gwen Stacy's dad kind of haunting Peter. Mm-hmm. Easy role for Dennis Leary. Just stand there and, and look stern. Yeah, pretty much. But it was kind of funny. He was almost doing uh, the equivalent to what William Defoe did in the first trilogy. Yes. Being the first, die at the end, and, and haunt forever after. Yeah, but at least this was a good haunting. It was, it was, and it was more or less what I was expecting of they'd gotten, Peter and Gwen gotten back together, but there would be the tension, do they stay together and such. But they didn't really backslide, I felt. 
I expected them to to have some turmoil, maybe not stay together the whole time, but for her to be the the love interest of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, where it ended with her, not too surprising. It's a riff on her fate from the comics. I kind of figured, and it was almost a, if we ever want to meet uh, MJ, we, we have to deal with Gwen. MJ was around when Gwen was around. There was some definite overlap there. But then after Gwen died, it took a while for, for Peter to kind of... I mean, MJ was, was there and waiting, but they weren't, you know, like instantly dating for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But for them to have the goblin, in this case, uh, Harry, not Norman, drop her from a great height and stuff and Peter try and, and fail to save her and such, it wasn't on a bridge, it wasn't exact, but they'd already used that kind of thing in the first film of the Spider-Man trilogy anyway, so you can't go too close to the same thing, otherwise it seems like whoever he's going to date is is going to have that fate. Well, whoever he's going to date is going to end up in endless peril. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I mean, Gwen did kind of say that wanting, dating him and loving him is kind of like wanting to what, electrocute him? Yeah, when she's explaining how Max Electro you know, it basically become a set obsessed with him and loves him and wants to kill him and such. It's like, well, that's not really love. So she's like, no, no, trust me, loving you, that's kind of... Yes. But they built up the relationship such that that was a very believable line. Yes. And I felt those two had a very good chemistry and back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's trying to figure out how to get his web shooters, which are mechanical in this, this set of movies, to survive the electrical blasts and stuff from Electro and stuff and and struggling with that. And she's like, well, did you try? And it's like, this is why I was valedictorian and you were not. But I liked that he had started with, I've tried everything. And she's like, you tried this? Yes. You tried this? Yes. You tried this? No. And it's like, if you remember, your, you know. Yes. And again, it was a very believable kind of back and forth. And I think she was a smarter character, whereas uh, Mary Jane in the first trilogy not all that bright. Yeah. Well, I think all the women in this one were smarter and more savvy, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like Aunt May. Yeah. Aunt May was clearly more aware mm-hmm. in terms of she pretty much put two and two together in Peter's life. But if he needed to hold that back to himself, she yeah. could respect that. Yeah. You know, but this wasn't an Aunt May who was going to have her house foreclosed on. And get booed out because Uncle Ben died. This was an Aunt May who was going to swallow her pride and go back to school with 20-year-olds to get additional training to get a second career and a better paycheck. While holding down a day job. Yes. And she'd gotten a job. She was bringing in money. She was letting Peter help, but... Well, and it was the job she'd had before. She'd been working because Peter forgot to pick her up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten she was doing the waitress stuff at that point. she had the job. I don't know that they clarified what right. it was at that point. But here where she was getting the double shifts or whatever and, and also doing the, the nursing stuff. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. And part of it is in the first trilogy, Aunt May was very elderly. Yes. Here, I mean, she's not young, mm-hmm. but she's not gray-haired, you know, well into the retirement age either. Yeah. So I think that was a smart move. And it's funny because I think Aunt May keeps getting younger as the reboots or whatever you want to call them happen. Yeah, she does. Because uh, Marissa Torme in the uh, the 
Tom Holland films, yeah. even younger. Yeah. So I think that's not unique to this set of films. We've seen the same sort of a thing with the Kents, including Clark and stuff in the various, you know, you look at the, the 50s TV show, you look at the, the Christopher Reeve movies, you look at Lois and Clark, you get to Smallville. There comes a point where it's like, soon we're going to be dealing with, you know, Martha and Jonathan in preschool. Well, with Aunt May, there's almost a, we've gone from she's too old to be able to support Peter without him helping to a she's too young to be raising Peter and supporting him without help. I mean, is she really old enough to have a 17-year-old? Yeah, I think so, but... Not this one, uh, the, yeah. In the, the newer one. I don't think they shrunk the age gap quite that much, but they're getting close to it. Yeah. So, it's interesting. I, they also did quite a bit with Peter's parents in this film. They did. They did a lot of that early on. I think they left stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, I mean, I'm okay with it, but they they set up more by implication than showing us that Oscorp was behind the death on the airplane. Mm-hmm. But given Peter knows his parents to have died in a car crash, not on a private plane. I think they left the door open for his father to show up in a third film. So do I. Because the plane's going down. We don't see it crash. We don't know that he died. And we see no sign of the assassin still having the parachute on him when he gets ejected from the plane. Yeah, yeah. And that was a very busy fight scene. It was. Again, I was surprised how much... I mean, because that dovetailed out of the opening that was so uh, evocative and similar and, and almost in some cases did they use some of the same footage from the first film. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a great way to get people back into the story. It's like, oh yeah, that's how that one started. Oh yeah, I'm back here. Mm-hmm. So they did, a, I think, a better job in this film than in a lot of sequel movies of reminding us where we left off, getting us back into the feel of things. Reminding us that we were with Uncle Ben and Aunt May, not needing to give us Uncle Ben's death, but still having that hanging over the household. What's interesting is Cliff Robertson was the Uncle Ben in all three Spider-Man films. In the second Amazing Spider-Man, I don't think we saw Uncle Ben at all. We saw him in those... In that brief opening, because we saw... You're right, you're right. But that may have even been the same footage of the room. I think it was. You're right, you're right. When six-year-old is getting dropped off. Yeah. I don't think they shot anything new this time for Uncle Ben, which given how much Captain Stacy we saw in a couple of key places, Mm -hmm. was kind of funny. We do get a mention of J. Joan Jameson. He doesn't pay a fair wage, or at least he does, but only for the 1960s, which Mm -hmm. is kind of funny since that's when the comic started. And we see some signs of the Daily Bugle, but we never actually set foot in the office. And we email with them. Yes, we email with them. But it's very different than that was a routine place to, to for Peter to go and, and, and have you know part of the story time spent. In the comics, in the, the previous set of movies, in the uh, live-action uh, American TV show. Mm-hmm. It was really based on that. And that was probably where they... The most of what they took out of the comics, because that TV show was really not dealing with supervillains at all, but just, you know, what they would consider, you know, a primetime crime du jour of the 70s. Yeah. The setup for Harry becoming the goblin at the end, him having known Peter, to me that felt like a retcon, but it's like, I can deal with it. Yeah. We didn't see that part of Peter's life before, so it's not 
violating anything. It fits in with the comics. Sure, why not? Well, and we established that Harry had been sent to boring school at age 11. Yeah. So, I mean, he says he's 20 years old. So I'm kind of torn between their acting like there's a three or four year age difference between them. But Pierre just graduated high school. I took it as maybe they were off by about a year at most. In other words, they couldn't have been like two or three grades off in school. That wouldn't have quite worked. And it's not like, well, I don't know if, if Peter's parents had worked at Oscorp, he could have known. I feared they knew each other through their parents through Oscorp. Yeah, I was thinking more through school or whatever, but you're right. It makes more sense through Oscorp. But if Peter's parents dropped him off when he was six... And he hadn't really seen Harry since his parents. No, we were clear that he'd seen him after because Harry helped him through That's the death true. of the yeah. parents. Yeah. But there's a lot of that backstory that you've got to kind of guess at. Yeah. But they they sold it in the film. They they gave us enough to deal with that I, I didn't have any problem with that. Yeah. Harry getting sold out by the, the board and stuff. I would say unfortunate, but not surprising. Yeah, this was definitely of the you-can't-trust-corporate-America vibe. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. We saw more of the board of directors and the higher-ups at Oscorp this film than we did in the last one, and we spent a lot more time, it felt like, in the last one at Oscorp. Yes. They at least remembered Gwen still worked there. Yes, but this one, the board was trying to clean up what had happened, or the perceived fallout publicity-wise from the first movie. Yes. So in that sense, this universe had consequences from the first movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think they were definitely more coherent between the two films here than in the, the first trilogy. And when we first get down to the special projects lab, we'd already gotten the hint through the files that Harry had gotten from his father about what would become the goblin suit and glider and such, which again harkens back to uh, what had happened in the first film with that being another project and such. So... That worked. We got what had looked like Doc Ock's, or what could be Doc Ock's arms. Mm-hmm. Whether they had been Doc Ock's previously or would become was unclear. We then saw what looked like would become the Vulture's wings in another thing. And then the Rhino armor, which in the comics, he's kind of bonded to this suit of, of you know, it, it. I don't want to say it's form-fitting because the guy is huge, but it's a costume, a hide, if you will, versus what looks like a power lifter, forklift armor sort of Pacific thing. Rim. Yeah, mini Pacific Rim kind of a thing. I was thinking almost like they had in Aliens and a few others. I was surprised at the end when, when the Rhino is, you know, in the armor doing all that stuff, and he's not only got the, I can lift cars and throw them, but he's fully armed like, you know, a, a War Machine Iron Man suit of armor. Mm-hmm. which. 2014, given when the Iron Man movies came out, you've got to imagine that there was some inspiration from there. There is that. And again, that was one of those things that it was clearly, we've got this movie, let's see if we can do more. I I don't remember why they didn't do more after this. I don't know how this one did in the box office. I thought it was a good film. In a lot of ways, I thought it was good. I mean, I always go back to what we jokingly call Stephen Amell's rule of writing, you know. Bad decisions make for good entertainment. You know, the security in that special projects lab and the the lockdown protocols were stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, the only way to lock down 
the lab is the entire lab gets locked down as one unit. You can't lock down the spider section or the green goblin section. So when Harry injects himself with the spider serum and is going crazy, he can crawl over to the green goblin armor and climb into it. Well, the other guy is doing the equivalent of pulling the fire alarm as he's going out. Yeah, he's locking down the lab and going out the elevator, and I'm like, why couldn't you confine him in one space? I would think you would want multiple levels of security there, where you have the equivalent of hexagon areas connecting to everything. Each hexagon can be completely contained. Yeah. So to get 30 feet away, you've got to go through like six of these hexagons of, of armor. I mean, he was in the spider section. Yeah. Why not just close the door on the spider section and enter Stephen Amell's Law of Writing? You know, so, I mean, I get from the writer's point of view why they did what they did, but work on your security, people. Well, it also goes down to Electro's origin here seemed a bit different because I don't remember the electric eels being involved in the comics, but I can't swear that I've actually read the original comic he showed up in or whenever they would have first shown his origin. But there's an aspect of electric eels that I'm pretty sure means they don't short out when they're underwater. I they, would think so, yes. Uh, just by nature yeah. of being an aquatic creature. Yeah. So being able to take electro out with water is kind of humorous. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a very different looking version of him. I don't know when, why, or how he got the costume when he showed back up at Oscorp with Harry, but okay. Well, and the whole creation of the character relied on the fact that when someone else wouldn't turn off the power to where he needed to do a repair, he'd say, oh, well, in that case, I'll just do the repair anyway. Well, not just I'll do the repair, but let me do this by climbing up on the railing, leaning over in a very precarious position where if anything were to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It, the fact he was the only person left on duty for that sort of a thing, didn't have the sense to go wherever he had to to turn the power off in that area himself. Yeah. Or a line of dialogue explaining why he couldn't go do that. Yes. You know? So there are a couple of things there. And that character having an obsessive personality. He met Spider-Man once, Spider-Man saved him, and now they're he thinks they're best friends or something. Well, Spider-Man did refer to him as my eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah, but it would have made more sense if he was a little miffed that Spider-Man never followed up, even though he was ready. Yes. Yes. You know, versus thinking they were now best buds, even though they'd not seen each other since. I liked the kid, though. I liked the kid. Which was a similar encounter with a very different spin. Yeah, yeah. I think that was another, you know, he saves a New Yorker and New Yorker tries to save him sort of a thing, but with a different play out and one that hadn't been done four or five times before. Well, but it's also, he is achieving his goal. He is giving hope. He is inspiring. And I think the kid they got did a great job, so nothing wrong with that. I would have cast differently. I would have cast African-American, and I would have called the kid Miles. Miles Morales is the character that replaced Peter Parker in the Ultimate Universe as Spider-Man. That's funny. And you could have just done a little bit of a nod there, you know? See, I would have done either that or actually an African-American girl. Going back to Peter's comment of, nobody knows if it's a guy or a girl. In which case, I would have gone with a Korean girl. Because Cindy Moon, I think is her last name, is the character Silk, who was bitten by the same spider as as Peter at the same time. Oh, that's fine. Got very similar but not identical powers. 
So there are a couple of things yeah. you could have done that would have been nice little Easter eggs mm-hmm. to those in the know, and it wouldn't have mattered if, if you didn't catch it. Yeah. So I thought what they did, though, was good. It was a, a good kid. It was a good scene when he was saving them from the bully and when it, uh, he showed up later and stuff there at the end. Mm-hmm. I thought some of the fight sequences and action stuff here was really well done. Mm-hmm. It wasn't too fast or, or too crazy or whatever. There was usually enough light you could see what was going on. Yeah. And a couple of times in the other films, not so much. And I felt they got a better sense of kind of the wisecracking Spider-Man and that attitude. Yeah, this had more humor to it Yeah, well, than any like, of the previous ones. When Peter was helping Gwen get out of Oscorp yeah. by running interference, it was a very Spider-Man-ish sequence. Well, and right before he's running interference, when he is uh, commenting on her hiding place. Yes, you found the most cliche place to hide. I'm sorry I didn't find the Bahamas of hiding places. Again, it was a good interplay between the two. Yeah. That's what I felt was really missing from the original trilogy. I just don't think they had that chemistry. They didn't have that interplay. I think they just did a much better job here on that. And... It's funny, as we were going through the end credits and stuff, I think we both commented on how few other names there were that really popped up. Oh, yeah, this person's done this or something. I I don't know that I could have named another one. Whereas in a lot of the other films, mm-hmm. oh, this person showed up in this other series, this person wound up doing that. Now, granted, 2002 versus, say, 2014, it's a decade worth of time they these actors would have to go do other things. Yeah. But it's also a matter of getting... More character actors, people that just, I want to say, blend in, mm-hmm. versus having Ted Ramey as, as Hoffman, having uh, Bruce Campbell as the ring announcer, the uh, theater usher, or the, the French uh, maitre d'. Yeah. You know? So there weren't the distractions of, oh, this is so and so, or who is this sort of thing. And it's, it's not a good or a bad, it's just a difference. We did have Stan Lee in a, a small nothing cameo, but he's at least there. I think he was better used in some other films. Overall, I thought this was, was fun. Not going to say it's like the best Spider-Man film ever or whatever, but it was a good sequel. And I think based on my enjoyment of these two, there doesn't seem to be any reason they shouldn't have done the third on based on my perception of the quality. But it's interesting to me how little time the villains got usually we do so much building up of the villains and usually the villains are such a big piece of the film and here the villains were just kind of part of it i felt they got an adequate amount of screen time not an overwhelming they weren't stealing the limelight from spider-man but we got a fair amount with with harry uh, before he becomes uh, an antagonist we spend a fair amount of time with electro most of its fight sequences, not all of it, though. I guess to me, though, they, they're not super villains, if you know what I mean. They're, they're definitely bad guys, but they are not over-the-top super villains, especially like in the first trilogy. They're not Batman-style ones that'll go on soliloquies and have these grand master plans and stuff. But a lot of Spider-Man villains are... People that that wind up with powers and abilities, but are not the smartest tool in the shed and not the most ambitious. They tend to be a lot more petty. I need money. I will take money. Somebody wronged me. I will get back at them. Mm -hmm. Versus I'm going to take over the world or I've got this grand plan or 
Yes, you know, exactly. I am the chosen one because. Yeah. These are the types that are more likely when you would ask for such a thing to just blast you versus tell you. Well, but it gave the film more room to do the stuff about Peter's parents, to do the relationship stuff, to do the Aunt May's journey with the jobs. I mean, there was so much character stuff going on. It's interesting because we commented on Spider-Man 3 having a very ambitious script and trying to do a lot and not necessarily always pulling it off. Yeah. But here, I think they, they told a very good movie. And you're right. We got a lot of uh, an arc for Peter's parents. Mm -hmm. We got an arc for, for Peter and Gwen's relationship, an arc for Gwen. We got Electro's story and such. We got an entire arc for, for Harry. Mm -hmm. You could argue we got a bit of an arc for some of the people over at Oscorp. Granted, a lot of those ended uh, abruptly. So I felt they, they told a lot of, of story, a lot of character moments without stretching themselves too thin, trying to do too much, because I felt it was a satisfying movie. Yeah. I, I can't really think of any character where it's, oh, you set this up and didn't go anywhere with it. Smythe? Smythe was one of them. The other one I was going to say was the assistant who got kind of promoted. Yes, Felicia. Felicia. I was expecting something to happen with her there at the end. Yeah. And... I actually think it would be funny if Felicia was now in charge of Oscorp. I was half expecting to see something like that at the end where she was given a little power and she took even more. Yeah. And I would have been satisfied if they had done the equivalent of a 30 second or a minute end, either end credit scene or there right at the end where we get that reveal that she's basically now in charge of Oscorp uh, and her last name is Hardy. Felicia Hardy was the black cat. Oh. And if she had basically effectively stolen the entire company. Yeah. And that's something that would have been really interesting for them to do and would have taken, again, a 30 second to a minute tag scene at the end. They almost could have done it as one of their fake uh, news segments. He could have done that. I, I think it would have been better to actually see her behind the desk, you know, in the thing. But yeah, there are half a dozen different ways you could do it. So... Uh, this is another uh, Spider-Man film that has the cemetery funeral scene. Uh, this one plays out for about five months, literally. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I realized what they were doing, it worked better. But at first, it's like, okay, you just cut to another shot. Oh, wait, he's in different clothing. Yeah. A little too subtle at first. Oh, there's now grass over the grave. Oh, yeah. it's snowing now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, five films, how many funerals? Just saying. A few too many. But I do think this was a lighter but not lighthearted film, mm -hmm. and I think that's why I like this uh, these two movies better than the original trilogy. Yeah, I can see that. There were some horror moment, uh, horror movie moment cliche type things as we're getting Electro as he's you know dealing with a couple of people and whatnot. Didn't overly care for that, but it wasn't as bad as like the Doc Ock hospital scene and a few other things there. I was confused one of the few times we got the Spidey sense. I was puzzled by that too when he's fighting Electro and now we're, we're, we're slowing time down. We're seeing people reach for things and I'm like, what is going on? And then when we flip back to speed and now he's, you know. Preventing makes... people from grabbing railings that are going to. Electrocute them and stuff. Yeah. He is psychic slash precognitive in this film. They never built that up, and that's not how I would have played the spider sense. Because that starts to make him a little too powerful. Mm. I would almost have it be a 
If you wanted to do that scene, I would have had it be something where we see a, a rapid kind of cut of things. I'm not sure exactly how to do it. I, I would do something where it seems like just blam, all this stuff happens. But then we rewind and we basically understand he's being thrown onto autopilot and doing all these things. He doesn't even realize what he's doing or why. Yeah. You know, but then it's once you realize, oh, this was going to happen. You could tell it was going to happen if you were paying attention, if you could process fast enough. And it's just Peter couldn't keep up with Spider-Man at that point, if you would. Yeah. Whereas here, when you slow everything down and we're doing all this, I'm like, okay, a lot's going on. I guess they're slowing it down so we can, as an audience, take it in. And that wasn't what was happening. Mm -hmm. I liked the idea. I liked the intent. I didn't think the execution was as smooth as it could have been. Yeah. Particularly when it wasn't paid off later in the end fight scene. Mm -hmm. So there was some stuff there. But overall, fun film. Yeah, it was. Fast two hours. Two hours, 20 minutes, actually. Two hours, 10, yeah. Two hours, 15, somewhere in there. So yeah, yeah. It, it went by fast. There was not a point where I'm like, geez, how long is this going to take or something? So that that's always a good sign. Yeah. This completes his run as Spider-Man uh, for these two films. Uh, next up is the Tom Holland films. Mm -hmm. We have already recorded on the first two of those when they first came out. So listeners uh, should not expect to see those on the regular feed after this because they can go to the archives on the website, comicbookpage.com. On the menu on the uh, first entry for the podcast and stuff, you can go to the, uh, the episode archive, search for the Spider-Man stuff, find it there. I've got all nearly 2,000 episodes up there. So we're going to rewatch those two. We're obviously not going to re-record on them because those two episodes are already out there. We'll then come back for the latest Tom Holland Spider-Man film, No Way Home. See what we think of that. Yeah. Anything else? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.